Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me, emerging from the sordid miasma of ill health and pulmonary complaint that is the TLS office, is the entirely lactose-tolerant Thea Lenarduzzi. Hello, Thea. I have no pulmonary complaints No, it's not you. Whatsoever. It's everyone else. In fact, where you sit... I'm surprisingly resilient. You are. Where you sit, the <laughs> desk where you sit, they're all ill the whole time. It's, like, the cri- like, it's like a hospital in the Crimean War at the TLS at the moment. In many ways. <laughs> Time off. Everyone virtually where you sit has had time off. It's disgraceful. But you're healthy. <laughs> I'm healthy. You're fine. I'm fine. You're happy. I am. How are you? I'm all right. I'm, I'm bearing up. Mustn't grumble. <laughs> uh, remember, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, smiley face, emoji, megalols, etc. We will look at the history of the writing rather than the simply remembering of words, not only in its modern, vapid internet incarnation, but also going all the way back to that Chinese invention of paper. Is writing a good thing? TLDR, probably. Daisy Dunn will be in the studio to discuss. Did you like TLDR, Thea? I had to no? look it up. Too long, didn't read. I had to look yeah, it up. you didn't know that? Didn't know it. Do you know what? I'm I didn't, proud to have not known that. I didn't know ICMY. I, which is, is in case you missed it. But I actually had missed that. <laughs> missed which was a sort of horrible irony hanging over me. There you go. You got to know the. T N N I. What's that? Too naff, not interested. No. Is that an actual thing? Or have you just no, made it up? Okay. Well, you're youngish, so I thought you might know. Uh, Daisy's piece on writing begins with an anecdote about Stalin, whose intrusive state apparatus meant that it was perilous to have any contrarian thoughts written down where they could be used against you. Stalin is such a figure of evil autocracy, of course, that we feel we already know all about him. But the second volume of Stephen Copkin's biography of The Man is Here, and Professor Lewis Siegelbaum will let us know what more there is to learn. It's a pretty bold undertaking to attempt to measure and chart how the written word has shaped history. It's difficult to work out precisely how such a project would work, given that different cultures made the shift from oral to written forms at different times and for different reasons, and not always decisively. And then, of course, there's the internet. Boo! 
Let's just do this whole WTF thing in intimacy. WTF does that mean for the written word? For language itself? Yeah. IDK. That's yeah. I don't know. Yeah, in I case you were born before the 90s. I was, yes. There are plenty of reasons not to write something down, especially not what I just wrote down and read. Yeah. Because... <laughs> Because the materials required are unavailable or too expensive or to evade the senses, just as there are plenty of reasons to commit something to paper, to cease or at least to limit the creative liberties that others might take with a message to produce one authoritative source text, which historically, of course, gave rise to notions of ownership, copyright and royalties, notions which continue to be tested by, again, the internet. In a new book, The Written World, Martin Puckner takes a long and inevitably kaleidoscopic view of what is gained and what is lost from writing things down, and how this has played out down the centuries ever since the dawn of writing in 3500 BC when the Mesopotamians set about inscribing clay tablets. Daisy Dunn, reviewing the book in this week's paper, finds plenty of examples of writing that preserves and destroys, brings together and tears apart. It's a vast and slippery territory, this, so I'm pleased to say that Daisy Dunn is in the studio now to help us navigate it all. Thank God we could find an expert, <laughs> Daisy, in everything since 3500 BC. It's hard to do, but well done. Oh, goodness, the pressure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Martin Puckner does, well, he focuses on old media, which is to say paper. So talk us through the kind of the beginnings of that, why it was invented and, and what it looked like, I suppose. Well, I think his is very much, it's called The Written World. It's a global journey and he hops around um, various places. We've obviously got um, papyrus coming out of Egypt, but he's more interested in paper as we would see it, paper in sort of a more modern sense. And that derives from China, sort of invented around 200 BC. And they make it out of uh, the mulberry uh, tree. They use the bark and they soak it. Um, oh, very, very clever. Yeah. So sort of, uh, make this, and then sort of word travels uh, slowly down the uh, the Silk Road. Um, and then he talks about there's a battle um, in Kazakhstan um, in the eighth century. But that's when the Arab forces these they, Arab they forces come and they actually capture um, Chinese people, hoping to sort of learn this whole uh, secret of of paper making from mm. them. Um, and that's where it's meant to all sort of kick off. And then it sort of travels down. Uh, the Silk Road ends up in Baghdad, and they almost create sort of like a paper making factory in Baghdad. But there one problem is that they don't have um, mulberry trees. So they have to come up with an alternative. Um, and they find that they can actually make paper using rags instead. Yeah. Do we get a sense of whether people were sceptical of this new medium or did they welcome it with open arms? I kind of got the impression from this book that most people um, welcomed it. Um, at the same time you have, so all the way going back through sort of antiquity, you have a lot of um, anxiety about the fact that actually only a small number of people really at the beginning are actually scribes and can write. And there's some anxiety about entrusting all of your literature um, to this very, very small group. Because because power, cause power resides in knowledge. And, so, uh, and I, even before the Gutenberg Press, which we'll, we'll, I suppose we'll get to, mm. that presumably if you could write and, and you had the ability to, to read, you had power that you wouldn't necessarily want to share with everybody. Exactly, and it's sort of, it becomes immediately vulnerable as soon as you give it to those people. And I think that's why you come across I mean, Socrates... Actually, a lot of the people in this book, it's on the written world, um, but a lot of the people in it never wrote anything at all. So as far as we know, we, sort of, we know Socrates' words because um, Plato wrote them down. We've got the Platonic Socrates pack. didn't write anything down deliberately, was it? Was it a well, he, he tells quite a few interesting sort of stories about the fact that 
actually writing things down is quite dangerous. It's not as good as passing knowledge on orally. And um, he was conversational as well, and that was his kind of modus operandi. So exactly, writing it down I mean, there's this whole story about this um, Egyptian king, and this Egyptian king is introduced to the idea of writing as a means of remembering things. Um, and then this king said, actually, this is not a means of remembering anything. It's just going to teach us to forget because we won't be able to use our brain. We'll most sort of forget how to remember things because we've become so reliant on but writing think, things down. Is that interesting? Because would not be would he not be interested in scale? Because to have that view of the world that you only want to, to, to be involved in oral transmission, he'd have to have, A, no sense of posterity is important, and B, no sense of scale is important. He's not interested in talking to later ages, except via oral transmission, or therefore talking to lots of people. It's, which is kind of humble in a way, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know that... I mean, maybe because we're so... We're in such a culture where massive transmission is so easy, but if Socrates felt that that was a risk, mm. that's almost suggestive he doesn't care about the fact that he can only communicate to the people he can physically see and talk to. Well, you wonder what's happening in a lot of people's heads. In the same time, I mean, Jesus as well never wrote anything down. Um, yeah. In the Gospels, you have him, apparently, he says he's writing um, once in sand, which he must know is going to be sort of, you know, blown away almost immediately. You know, are they thinking of of passing their yeah, message on through other people, or or maybe they're not thinking of the we can only see it because we ascribe a significance to them. Mm. So I don't know whether the, the the actual Jesus, presuming he's not the son of God, if we can for a second, <laughs> uh, or Socrates, would they be aware that they were that they were major figures? Which is kind of interesting because you'd, you'd have to. Because posterity is key, isn't it? To every, I mean, everyone after the invention of paper cares about posterity. All the poets since then think about how they will be read in the future, don't they? And these people pre the written word, are they expected just not to think about it? Well, no, that? because in those days they only lived in their relatively small communities. So the idea of, you know, someone being a philosopher in, in, in Athens, they would never probably expect that someone in. You know, well, they didn't even know about America at the time, but that they would know about what they were they, yeah. they were preaching because they, there was no there was no means of transferring that knowledge. So, so they they were famous within their immediate context, but that could all be done orally. Yes, yeah, so in a way, vanity is vanity and invention of 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 paper of writing stuff down. You can only really think that you're going to live long and and spread around once the means of that spreading is is fixed. I don't know. Or did they believe in orality so much they thought that that, that would be the process? I think if you, if you go back and think about, I don't know, the Homeric heroes, the whole idea of chaos, your reputation will be so great when it's established that it will live on forever just because people will be talking about it yeah. all that time. And that's the aim rather than thinking... So their belief is that the power of, of story in its verbal spoken form because you're right, they're, they're preoccupied with their reputation down mm, to posterity. Completely, and Kleos is this, this massive idea that you're having to sort of, you achieve such heroism that your name will live on forever. You're kind of overcoming your own mortality via that means. I suppose it only became when things started to be written down and, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and so I, I, I write it down and then it can be reproduced. Then it becomes this 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 material object and then you get notions of property and... and and royalties and rights and things like that, and that's when it becomes a very modern idea of, of, of my, you know, my, my ego, my, my power. Well, my author and authority stage. are sort of cognate words for that reason, presumably. The exactly. idea that, that you that you are the author, you are some a figure of, of authority. Yeah, I think so. And I think also we are, as Theo was saying, a lot more concerned with putting our name on something than historically people necessarily were. Yeah. Um, so sort of, you know, going back. 
the whole idea of, of orality sort of lies behind Homer and some sort of other poets as well. Um, it relies on people passing uh, literature on without having to sort of feel like they've got to put their own personal yeah. stamp on it. We're so and uncomfortable with collaboration generally, aren't we? Even now that you look at Shakespeare, the notion that people he would have written a bit, someone else would have written a bit, someone you know, the, the idea of the, the chaotic process by which things are created. Yeah. We don't like we that. We don't like that. We think, no, 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 he's a genius. He stands alone. He didn't, he didn't get that. It's contamin- it seems like contamination, doesn't mm. it? We need to find the bits of Shakespeare uncontaminated by other people. Whereas even in Shakespeare's time, that because he didn't write, I mean, he didn't have anything set down for posterity after he died, did he, Shakespeare? He wasn't interested in, you know, the, the folio came out after he died. He, he didn't collect his, himself at all. No. So, so all the way through to the Renaissance period, people weren't that bothered about it evidently i think compared to us i think it's a, compar- a relative thing yeah 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 but, but one, one of the examples that um that does come up in the book in which you you mention is um cervantes and he's a sort of an example of how it sort of cut both ways this this fact of being able to write something down and disseminate your work because it, it you know it allowed him to create this uh this celebrity for himself but at the same time it sort of rendered him more vulnerable didn't it this the sequel yeah, she, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is amazing. I hadn't really um, looked into this at all um, before reading this book. Um, the idea that um, Don Quixote comes out, um, it's so popular that everyone really, really wants a sequel. And then someone just decides, you know, I'll, I'll write one, I'll take the characters, I'll create a second part. And uh, this, um, this this writer adopts a pseudonym, publishes it. And obviously, I mean, can you imagine your reaction? I think he, he was probably thinking, what can I do? Because um, this other writer sort of assumed that he has um, sort of ownership of, of these characters and of the plot and he takes it his own way so um, I think Pusher has a quite a good quote he says something about um, meeting he knew the real culprit was not the copycat author um, but the new world of print which had made both his story and its imitations so widely available he drew the only logical conclusion, namely to send his knight out to confront this print culture head-on. <laughs> that's quite nice. It's when you read Don Quixote, it's amazing how postmodern it is because yeah. it's basically yeah. very conscious of its status as a text. So we should actually say that the reason why this has changed, this is the invention of the press. This is the press, so, yes. So, so the so, Gutenberg press happens in the 15th century. Mid-15th century, yeah. yeah. Um, and that changes the game. It changes the game. But then, I mean, I think interesting idea, again, that comes out of this book is that it's not um, an invention. I think Pickner doesn't want to call it an invention. He's calling it sort of more of a culmination of, of global ideas. He's using um, paper, which has been made in the Arab method, using uh, the rags. And uh, he's using knowledge, which has been passed down from China. Um, it, the Chinese have been able to uh, create sort of woodblock prints and then also sort of individual lines of characters um, which they can press together. And the first Gutenberg press is actually just a wine press, yeah, um, which has got this sort of uh, wet paper inside and then all these um, lines of, of, of characters which are pressed together. So it's not really an invention. I guess his real sort of contribution to this is to make it sort of um, adaptable to mass production. So he creates this tool so that you can actually lay... Um, sort of like a thousand different letters um, down at once rather than having to do individually. So, so is that the equivalent of, uh, I suppose, the invention of the internet? Uh, or sorry, is the invention of the internet equivalent of that sort of seismic moment? So we have that, the Gutenberg Press means that when the Reformation happens, when Luther starts preaching, all of his ideas go across Europe straight away. Um, and that was a big moment in, in the transmission of ideas. Presumably when we talk about the mass, cult, mass proliferated culture now, the internet's a similar... 
I say it's comparable completely. Yeah. I mean, I think what take, it takes everyone by surprise the speed with which you can get things out there. And I think I mean Luther himself is taken by surprise and how quickly his sermons can suddenly get out there. At one point, the church um, put all his um, sermons on the on the fire, but the printers are actually going at a quicker rate than anything can actually burn, which yeah. I think is, is just absolutely amazing. I think they seem really, really sort of taken aback by um, how sort of what a what a huge audience you can reached which just hadn't been possible before then and, and possibly when we start thinking about our culture now and how unsettled it feels it maybe is another parallel to to that sort of 15th 16th century where presumably everything that had been certain in terms of the church controlled most things knowledge was transmitted downwards if they bothered at all it was very hierarchical and then this invention and then the the, the rise of vernacular language uh, meant that all of a sudden everyone could get access to it. That was hugely unsettling for societies across across Europe. And perhaps it's no surprise that we might feel at the moment, in the last 10, 15 years, all of our verities and certainties are being threatened or challenged by the invention of the internet. Mm. That feels like a parallel, doesn't it? That we shouldn't be surprised that everything is so sort of un, uh, uneasy now and, and disordered because we've the way we communicate is fundamentally altered forever. Is that something that Puckner deals with, the internet? I guess I understand that the book sort of ends with the advent of, advent of the internet. He just and couldn't face it. The internet, yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> Not again, this whole other revolution. <laughs> and he makes some other sort of faced comments on um, on Pottermore and you know, all this sort of thing and sort of touches on, on, on the internet. And he kind of so ends by saying, Pottermore, um, again, I, I had no idea what this is. It's right. sort of... Um, a website where they can add on sort of extra sidelines and it's things to do with yeah. it's basically yeah. fan fiction but all related to Harry Potter okay um, so you know, he had, I don't think he'd actually read Harry Potter until he'd been sort of researching <laughs> this book and then suddenly I think he sort of said you know it's, it's quite samey after a while <laughs> I've still not read Harry Potter have you read Harry Potter? not all of them no Theo? I read the first one my mum brought it back from a business trip and I loved it you the right age I was, I, well yes I was the same age as him when it started so was that 96, oh. something yeah. like that? Maybe a bit later? Yeah. yeah. So you were actually you were reading it as a child, as, yes, as was designed. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I'm feeling very depressed about not being a wizard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that never goes away. Yeah. That never goes away. <laughs> but so I am about, now, yeah, of course. The point about Pottermore is that it's a fan fiction, so a creation like Harry Potter can leave J.K. Rowling and enter the world where everyone gets a piece of it. Yeah, I mean, and this is what sort of fan fiction rides on as well. I, sort of, I looked... Um, he doesn't. He doesn't go into fan fiction. The author. I just sort of was interested in it. The fact that actually you have people who are taking other people's stories and yeah. then writing their own versions. I mean, where where is the copyright rule over this? Like, I have no idea. What does it mean to be well, able to take? Yeah, I mean, the internet is is sort of that whole Wild West thing that it hasn't really caught up with copy. So there was one challenge, which was when uh, the presses were able to print things, like in the case of Cervantes, where they could just get it out faster than anyone could do anything to stop it. Mm. And then this this whole, and you know, we'd sort of got that under control with copyright and all that sort of stuff. And then the internet came along and you sort of have to rewrite everything because how can you police it? And where are the lines uh, drawn? And the notion of authority again, of exactly. being one author in control of things just dissipates completely. Yeah, well, not yeah. completely, because J.K. Rowling still is the recognisable author of Harry Potter, even if some people are writing... Mm. other stuff I suppose but it's almost like we're going back in time in some ways I mean I was thinking about orality a lot when I was writing this and I was thinking you know, originally with Homer and other poets people are sort of brought together by, as a community to learn something 
And almost in a similar way, people oh. sort of writing fan fiction, they're all coming together and they're commenting on each other's and it's all these kind of... Th- like the, whole, the idea of a thread is almost... Yeah. There is a parallel there, I, I think, That's between posi- the two. It's a very positive spin you're putting on that, though. But it's positive, and then, but there's no need for you ever to meet anyone that you're actually engaging with on the internet. I mean, you can just imagine everyone in their own sort of flat typing yeah. up and they're sort of engaged in this community. But then you're not brought together by it at all, sort of yeah. physically, because you're all completely separate and that's what and I suppose what JK Rowling has done is recognise that fan fiction and all of these these spin-offs aren't actually a threat to the original work I, I doubt very much that no. sales have been impacted at all well if someone I suppose wrote something that was better than the original then there might be an issue I mean, but, the chance, they have. but the chances of that are imagine how would it be spotted yeah that's true mm. uh, should we talk there about the should we move on to the whether yes. the internet has ruined well language? yes because it's interesting and I, <laughs> I wonder I mean yes <laughs> I wonder. Uh, well, the, the, the piece that follows, yeah, the piece that follows yours, Daisy, is a piece by um, Tom Rackman, and he tackles writing in the digital age via these two new books. One of which is um, a style guide for the digital era. It's called A World Without Whom, uh, and it's by Emmy Favilla, who is the first copy editor at BuzzFeed. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah. Well, but, it probably uh, wasn't until about a year ago when they made everyone redundant. But, well, but, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that's, that's an interesting one, don't you think? It sounds quite conflicted, her, her book. Yeah, and it basically says that we should... And part of me agrees, because basically her point is we shouldn't be so stuffy... Uh, this is the kind of Oliver Cam view of sort of language, mm-hmm. that you shouldn't be too stuffy. As long as we can understand each other, that's fine. And I'm kind of with that. And then I read little bits of this, and you know I hate emojis. I absolutely hate emojis. I've never used an emoji. I don't until we've put one on the front cover of the TLS this week. My <laughs> only ever use of an emoji. Because I look at an emoji, and this sounds so pretentious, but I genuinely feel like it is just like looking at Linear B, you know, the great sort of Mycenaean early alphabet. They, they use pictures. It's an ideogram. It's, it's, it's an ideogram. Good enough for the Sumerians. Exactly. They, I mean, they have sort of like little little so blood sacrifice. Probably. <laughs> Maybe we should start doing it now. Go on, make the case. Come on, Daisy. You, 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 you two are nearly. You're not nearly. But go on. Try and convince me. I don't, if if you have a look, a little emoji of a pint of beer. Yes. For example, I mean, I look at that. I think actually, is this very different from the little symbol in Linear B for like a, a jug? Yeah. Which must be yeah, no, you're right. You see these things. I mean, it, it feels like going backwards so like, I, I don't feel like it's sort of it's, but is that it's a novel thing? or new or yeah and funny if I've got two very young kids and they send me emails sometimes and they've they've and they just send they're just full of emojis and they're just because they're just that lovely little pictures but it does feel the problem one use of it is we're not we've found no way of communicating irony in writing really in the whole of civilization you have no way of really doing this so at its best if someone then does a little winky face are they denoting irony in the first time that's ever been possible? So really does it in fact that? lead to more precision? Which yeah. is obviously what we're all worried about well, is it, that uh, the internet has led to. I think that's right in the sense that if you tweet something, I do, and, and you make a joke, an ironic joke, and then people don't spot the irony. And then, well, why are you saying that? And actually, a winky emoji would have saved the day entirely. But is that not admitting <laughs> to the failure of language? That you can't convey well, a, a notion without a, a silly little face to. I suppose in a sense it is, or it, maybe it's not the failure of language so much as the failure of, of the two people involved in the conversation to know each other well enough or understand that, that language. I suppose yeah. more worrying, I'm not really worried about emojis, to be honest. Do you uh, use emojis TDH. regularly? Uh, no, not regularly, but no. I can... I can. Daisy, I, you I have, I have yeah, and I will. So it, it's, it's quite slow. I mean, I find sort of, you know, even scrolling onto that other page where you get the list of yeah. emojis and finding one, that takes longer than... So you're advocating them, but you don't use them. Well, I use I use some of them. When was yeah. the last time you used an emoji? Uh, 
don't know, a few days. Okay. Probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think basically, I'm more worried about e- abbreviations. Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> We've had my emoji uh, discomfort. Let's move on to abbreviations. Well, as Rackman puts it, they um, they emote where the written language hasn't. So it's a similar thing, but things like LMFAO, which was new to me, meaning things like laughing my fucking ass off. How helpful are those? And lol. how What's ugly are they? Yeah, would you mm. use them? Do no. you use lol? No. Yeah. Mega lol? No. No, I wouldn't either. But oh, are, we really? just being snob- <laughs> no, are we just being snobbish? This is a classic example of, of snobbery, isn't it? That this is demotic language at its absolute. You know, people text language is kind of the most purely demotic language because you're basically saying, I'm going to abbreviate, I'm going to condense, I'm going to trust that I can convey a meaning to you because we have a personal connection or humans have a connection. Should we be sniffy about it, Daisy, do you think? I don't, you know, I, 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 kind of, I don't want to be sniffy about it, but at the same time I kind of get what they are saying. I mean, can you imagine people growing up learning these as if they're kind of standard abbreviations well, they will that we'd be, find? They? Exactly, and they will. Yeah. And then, I mean, what will that do to, I mean, I don't think, what's that, LMF? L-M-F-A-O. Do you know that? No. Well, no, I'd seen it written down. I had no idea what it stood for until you told me. Yeah. I mean, what what is the use for it, though? I mean, because there's a difference between abbreviation and embellishment, and I, I would say an emoji yeah, yeah, yeah. embellishes, mm. whereas these things abbreviate, and isn't that just lazy? Why can't you just say I think it? they're the same thing. It's the same thing, surely. Because the the, the laugh my fucking ass off or ass off, is simply just doing the same <laughs> thing as a smiley face emoji, isn't it? It's no, exactly it's the not. same thing. It's, it's, it's completely different. But, but say you tell a joke and you do a smiley face emoji, that's saying this is a joke. You're worried that your joke isn't actually sufficiently a joke. It's like an exclamation mark as a yeah, miniature distress yeah. flare. Uh, an emoji is the same thing. It's saying, <laughs> here is a non... Here's a funny statement, and I need to badge this as a funny statement with an emoji. If I write lol or LMFAO, I'm doing exactly the same thing, aren't I? I suppose, but lol is different to... Oh, no, I suppose it's not. I don't know. So if you're going to be all on the emoji train, you're going to have to be on the abbreviation train. I'm not all train. on any of these trains. Okay. One foot is on the train and the other is dangerously <laughs> still on the ground. <laughs> yeah. What is so interesting to me, I think you've illustrated um, Tom's piece, the picture of this dog. Yes. <laughs> and that made me laugh. I've never seen this. It's a, it's a meme. Dog speak, not dog right? meme, yeah. With, with dog speak, and you still have these sort of random words yeah. around it. I mean, I think that's quite interesting. I quite liked it. You like the dog meme? I like the dog meme. Yeah. Again, it's going in my mind sort of going back to sort of vorticism looking back at blasts of Wyndham Lewis to be sort of you know <laughs> oh, slipper wow. I think you yeah, know, yeah. absolutely intellectualise yeah. it I, I think. love a meme I, yeah. think, I think memes in some ways are because memes are shared experiences aren't they because you need to know the art you need to get the gag yes there's one thing uh, that's in the book and the book has, is clearly quite annoyingly written I think we have to be absolutely honest with our, ourselves about that but the author likes the use of the word literally to mean oh. not literally so you know, I literally blew my head off when by by you I mean metaphorically. Laughed my fucking ass yeah, off. I, yeah, exactly. I metaphorically <laughs> laughed my fucking ass off. Now, this is becoming a very foul mouth episode. By the way, I blame you for that thing. Actually, now, does that that seems to me to be a really good test because when someone says I literally blew my head off, from a communication point of view, we know they didn't. But are we right to to be angry at the? inexactitude of it because it's just wrong it's fundamentally factually wrong it's wrong and if I saw it in a book like that I'd put a huge line through it you know and would you look down upon you kind of think I would look down on that person yeah you would look down on that person but the the author's what's the name of the author Emmy Favilla yeah her argument is we shouldn't A one of the messages of the book is relax a bit which I kind of do get but should we be looking down on someone for saying literally wrongly I think there's a difference between doing it in, on the page and saying it. People say, I literally did this yeah. in conversation all the time. 
I don't think really people mind. But if you're on the page, you're writing a book, I think there is a difference there, and I think it, it looks terrible and you should get rid of it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. redundant. I think it goes back to authority again. We want people, when they're writing books, I think, or setting something down in a permanent fashion, which is what writing effectively is, even digitally. You know, if you're saying, this is my, these are my thoughts set down, you want that to be the best possible thought polished in the best possible way. Mm. And any amount of internet informality isn't going to change that. I agree with that. It's just all about precision. And we're not going to have time to talk about it now, but <laughs> we're, we're the only paper to have paired this, I think, this BuzzFeedy offering uh, with a guide written by Harold Evans, who yeah. uh, was the editor of The Times when um, Emmy Favilla was still in nappies. I mean, how could we not make that pairing? Yeah, exactly. But um, his premise is that ghastly writing is a reason people assert more and reason less. And he cites muddled language among the causes for terrorism, the financial crisis, and all of these, you know, all of these uh, dooms. And I suppose if all of that boils down to, look, if we don't make sure that we are as clear and precise as we can be, that's a dangerous thing, then surely we're all on the same page. Yes, it's just you, all about precision. But the question is, is an emoji or an abbreviation a way of achieving greater precision? Possibly, but those things are different to the structure of the sentence. Yeah, what okay. we're talking about. I there's messy so. language and then yeah. there's... Adults. And we can't blame the internet for the banking crisis because the point about, there is a point that the bankers didn't understand the products they were selling. That's absolutely true. And when, when there were select committee hearings into the bankers, they said, well, what does that mean? And they went, well, I don't know. And some of the explanations for some of these securities that they were selling ran to like a million pages. And nobody understood them, including the people trading the money off them. So I think there is something about comprehensibility, which is possibly the message from, from Reveller's book, to say <laughs> comprehensibility is the main thing. It doesn't matter if you do it inelegantly or elegantly... Um, metaphorically or, 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 or with signs, everyone's got to understand it. Exactly. So can we oh, can we agree? Are we in agreement? I think so. I think we are. W T F <laughs> There we go. It's been foul mouth this the whole podcast. <laughs> Daisy Dunn, thank, let's leave it on that note. Daisy Dunn, thank you very much indeed. Oh thank you for having me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In 1975, a group of Soviet academic specialists held a conference in Bellagio on Stalinism. As Louis Siegelbaum writes, it didn't get very far. The conferees not only failed to reach any consensus about how to define Stalinism, they couldn't even agree whether they should try to define it. Which may seem odd at first blush. We think we know of the cruelty, the invasiveness, the paranoia of Stalin and his system. We might use the term Stalinist as a metaphor for the brutal expression of suspicious will. But what was Stalin's real purpose? According to Kotkin, whose second volume of Stalin's Life, Waiting for Hitler, 1928 to 1941, has now been published, he was Leninist to the core, a communist and revolutionary committed to his own view of socialism. He was almost manically paranoid too, of course. The action of Kotkin's book take place largely in Stalin's office, the centre of the web of intrigue. What do we learn there and how can we profitably define the ism that emerges? Well, Professor Siegelbaum joins us on the line from Michigan. Welcome to you. Thank you. Why is it hard to define Stalinism, do you think? And is it easier now than it was back in in 1975? I think it's superficially uh, easier, but Stalinism, the very term, has a history and is uh, not surprisingly tied up with politics and historians gradually dispensed with uh, the reference and um, used the term in a kind of blithe manner. But it's worth, I think, recalling uh, that history in order to understand the relationship of Stalin and his rule to uh, what came before and uh, to understand uh, continuity and discontinuity. These are, of course, central to Kotkin's project. But did it, uh, is, the, is your point that uh, in the same way as Kafkaesque and Orwellian have, have sort of lost any meaning, Stalinism and Stalinist is almost metaphorical rather than, than, than descriptive now? Yes, I think that's part of it. So Stalin, I've seen Stalinist completely decontextualized and used simply to represent brutality or to represent... Uh, you know, a kind of authoritarian dictatorship of any kind. Uh, And uh, I think that, you know, while that's perhaps uh, inevitable, uh, we we lose a great deal of the historical specificity that, uh, of course, uh, in his massive project, Kotkin is trying to bring us back to. So, so, so what is Stalin's, I suppose, philosophical relationship to say, I suppose, going back to Marxism, is there a philosophical project behind Stalinism that we can identify? Well, certainly Stalin thought there was. Uh, Stalin considered himself a perceptive and and a deeply committed Marxist. Stalin read an enormous amount, steeped himself in the classics, prided himself on being Lenin's disciple. But of course, Stalin interpreted Marx and Lenin in his own way in circumstances that had a lot to do with the Russian revolutionary movement, Russia's place in the world. This was uh, very much the focus of Kotkin's uh, volume one. And as Stalin proceeded to construct 
uh, his version of the Soviet order, the connection between Marx's analysis of capitalism and Lenin's project uh, got uh, increasingly, I would say, tenuous. And did he know that? I mean, it seems to me the, the obvious point around any consideration of Soviet communism is if, if this was designed to make things equally distributed, he must have been conscious that he was creating a hierarchy with himself at the top. And so there is an, a natural contradiction in his being successful and being authoritarian and the project he's purporting to pursue. Is that something he was aware of? There certainly is a lot of evidence of kind of constructive application of phases and stages and other ways in which the ultimate communist society and, and its shape could be put off to the indefinite future. Yeah. I mean, the relationship sort of connected to that with um, with Trotsky is is obviously quite a famous one. Um, the, the volume, I, I notice, ends a year after Trotsky's assassination. Do, do we get a sense of, of their relationship and, and what led to that assassination in this book? Quite so, and quite fascinatingly. Kotkin is so impressive at how much and how deeply he's read. And he notes uh, in passing, uh, by the way, that um, Stalin had a special section of his library in which the works of Trotsky were available to him, and he obviously had had read them. Uh, I think most fascinatingly, Kotkin sees that um, the impetus for the great terror that decimated uh, the ranks of the party, the military, and other uh, institutions was uh, to some extent that Stalin shared in a bizarre kind of way Trotsky's analysis of what had happened in the Soviet Union, namely bu the bureaucratization of the party. So Stalin taking up this, this Trotskyist insight comes to fear the restrictions that the bureaucracy, the process of bureaucratization would impose on him and on the project that Stalin saw as essential. Is it misleading for us to think you know, in that in that sort of Carlyle sense of history being great men that what then followed in the Great Terror was down to at least partially the personality of Stalin. He was paranoid about the project and people's interventions in it. And that personal paranoia can be connected to that horrendous policy that was the Great Terror. Yes, I, I share that concern. I think Kotkin could have done a little more in, in being uh, explicit uh, about the extent to which, you know, the very form of, of biography tends to convey that, that impression. In Kotkin's version, uh, Stalin and Stalinism come to be inseparable from socialism and Marxism, so that, as he puts it at some point, uh, there would have been no socialism without Stalin, and without socialism, no Stalin. But, you know, I suppose the, the question this boils down to, and this may be an impossible question, is if person X had been in a position of authority instead of Stalin, would the manifestation of that socialism have been the same? Or was it down to the nature of Stalin himself that led it to be such a bloody version of it? Correct. And, and of course, we all have our different emphases. And, you know, there's a there's a broad spectrum of positions taken on, on this. Um, uh, I, I, I personally feel more most comfortable in considering that there are certain structural limitations, what they came to refer to as capitalist encirclement, 
being among them uh, the rise of Nazism, uh, you know, a whole series of in- international contingencies play a role. And, and, you know, paradoxically, Kotkin is extremely good on emphasizing those contingencies uh, when it comes to his analysis of, the, of, of what's going on in Europe and, and indeed beyond in, in Asia, too. But within those uh, limits, there certainly is a suggestion, if not ample evidence, about how differently members of the party, factions within it, not speaking simply of Trotsky and and his supporters, would have done things uh, differently, would have not imposed a kind of collectivization and. Uh, on the on the peasantry that 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 Stalin was insistent upon, um, and and other internal policies. And was the party relatively um, you know together in terms of how they thought um, you know how they approached uh, German Soviet relations, and particularly in the build up to World War Two, or was there much variation within the party there? We have some evidence of a concern about um, the increasingly warm relations that um, were developing, but um, there's nothing in this volume, nor for that matter anything else I'm aware of, that indicates um, a well-articulated alternative policy. Uh, So, of course, Stalin, Molotov, as Stalin's... uh, uh, foreign policy uh, minister or commissar, uh, were, the, were, they were pursuing a policy, uh, a sort of multi-track policy, um, where um, uh, trying to ascertain the, dis- the, the dispositions of, of the other major powers, uh, trying to uh, feel out um, how far they could go in, um, in forming uh, alliances, and conducting multiple uh, negotiations simultaneously. This is the stuff of Soviet foreign policy in the 1930s, you know, amazingly right up until the Nazi invasion. Just just finally, um, uh, Lewis, as a piece of history, this is a big old project he, he's on. This is a, a large volume. There's, there's obviously going to be more, more, more to come. How do you rate this as a piece of historical writing and and how much of a pleasure is it to read just from a sort of stylistic point of view is this a good piece of 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 well-written history it's fascinating it's multi-leveled i think uh, accessible to uh, an audience that certainly goes beyond the experts the project is so large and this single volume at over a thousand pages is of a scope that could warrant multiple readings at different points in one's life i look forward personally, to the third and culminating volume. Well, that's a pretty good recommendation. Lewis H. Siegelbaum, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Um, it's a, I'm, I'm very fascinated with this idea of, sort of, you know, the history is the story of great men, but bad men interests me a lot. That how much having, and can you even talk about things in this way, how much having an evil man, fundamentally evil man, at the top impacts the whole of the rest of history? If If... Is it even possible to think like this if Stalin had been a better person, a less paranoid person, or if he'd have been offed and someone had replaced him? How much of the course of, of, of history, how much of the course of, of communist history changes? Or is the nature of the project such, the nature of trying to have people enforce socialism on everyone always going to corrupt to the point where it never works out? That seems to be the well, fundamental I mean, question. Yeah, I mean, it? but that's also the million-dollar question, yeah. and you, you could apply that to our current predicament. You know, if someone were to assassinate the current president of the US, 
what will then Mike Pence would take that place how would that pan out like because there's a I whole agree. team there I agree I'm not, I'm not drawing you know I'm not drawing that crude a, a parallel yeah. between Stalin and, and, and Trump but Trump but doesn't have an ideology in the way that uh, what, what I'm interested about he does is, it's me 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 yeah me which me, is, me narcissism which is not much money. of a, which is not much of an, an ideology but, <laughs> but st- if you think Stalin that's why Stalinism is interesting as an idea to me that communism quite a clear idea if it is done by someone other than Stalin at that period in history, does the whole project change or actually is the nature of the project so self-defeating? Because some people would say it has never worked anywhere. Everywhere it's tried, it always leads to dictatorship. It always leads to someone at the top effectively abusing downwards. Well, I mean, it's interesting on that point. And I think, you know, the, the conference that Lewis brings to our attention in, in 1975 yeah. in Bellagio, that's, that's, I mean, who, I would have loved to have been there. That would have been such an interesting conference. And the fact that it well, happened no, they in didn't Italy, imagine, they didn't do it. No, but because you can imagine them toing and throwing over exactly what we're saying. Like, is Stalinism all about Stalin, yeah. or is it about X, Y, Z? Yeah. Isn't? Yeah. Yeah, is it? Is it? Is it a person, or is yeah. it? Is it an ism? Yeah. And I, I, I suppose that I'm also just very interested in the fact that it happened in Italy, because. When when Stalin died, L'Unità, which is the communist paper in Italy, had this this panegyric um, to Stalin. And this you know, 1953. No, oh, well, yeah. tides had already turned though, yeah. and it was just so uh, unreserved in its in its gush for yeah. the, the genius of this one man. Nothing could have happened without him. What will we do without him? Everything is lost. And then, of course, it wasn't because communism continued Indeed, to thrive. Yeah. Uh, and in Italy as well, it was, you know, I think still getting 30% of the vote up until the 70s. So, really? Yeah. So it still had lingered. Um, it's fascinating. Well, it's been a very varied podcast. We've, we've dealt with <laughs> Stalinism and, and, and LMAOF. It's a funny old thing. That's all we've got time for, dear, <laughs> alas. <laughs> almost already forgotten what that was. What, really? L-M-F-A-O. Yeah. It's so difficult. Yeah. Why can't we just say laughing? Anyway. You, you, you can't. Stop sweating. Can we stop sweating? I know, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I can't stop. I know. <laughs> Thanks go to Daisy Dunn for, for making us do that. And Lewis Siegelbaum as well. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or to your local shop to get the full edition of the paper. We have some Conrad, some Dostoevsky, some Proust and some Anne Quinn, among many other things. Next week... You're not here, are you, Theo? No, I'm not. Uh, but Lucy will be in your stead. But our theme, very loosely, will be medicine. And we're going to learn about the 18th century man who used to do experiments on frogs attached to his shoulders. Like epaulettes? Yes. <laughs> Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. 
Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. 